welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. Um, this week, I have an artist, uh, not an artist, sorry, a writer that I met who's actually in my area. So I'm super excited. Her na- name is Denise Kawai. Denise, can you say hello to our listeners? Hello, listeners. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, Denise. So Denise and I were just talking about the fact that she and another friend of her has a podcast as well. So um, we may be talking a little bit about that later and, and um, you guys will get to hear something about that side of what she's doing. But Denise, first, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about yourself, starting with currently what state you live in and kind of where you come from. And the second part of that question is, do you have a day job outside of being a published author? Sure. So I am, I am from Portland, Oregon. Um, and then I moved around a whole bunch and have landed in Southwest Washington. So I moved like, I don't know, I moved like eight times, thousands and thousands of miles and ended up an hour away from where I was born. (laughs) I don't know how that happens, but that's, that's how it worked out for me. Um, And in addition to being an author, I also have a mini farm, uh, an urban farm in the middle of the suburbs. And so during the day, (laughs) I farm and then I I write at night and in the winter. Oh, so I'm coming over to your farm because that's my dream. Do you, uh, what do you have in your farm? Do you have chickens and what else? veggies um so we don't have any livestock because we're in city limits and I haven't I don't have enough neighbors who love me enough to get away with bending the rules Mm -hmm. um so we do a lot of um specialty like heritage um fruits and vegetables Mm -hmm. so like purple carrots and black tomatoes and you know fancy pretty foods Mm -hmm. um and uh, yeah, I do. I sell all kinds of. Today, I I dug up like 300 bulbs, the specialty wow. bulb. So, nice. so I I do that um, to kind of fill the gaps with my writing time. And then beyond those two things, I'm also a full time uh, caregiver. Um, I have a family member who has mental illness. And then my husband is also chronically ill. And so oh. I just take care of everybody all the time. You're a caregiver. I get it. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah. So let me ask you one more question about what you're doing with your urban farm. Cause it's another topic of passion for me that I'm not quite there yet. So I will yeah. be bugging you about that someday in the future. Um, do you sell, do you sell at a farmer's market? Is that how you get some income out of what you're doing or how do you, or do you sell? Um, I, I don't, I don't have enough um, consistent volume to do a farmer's market and I'm not licensed as a farm because my, my volume just isn't there. Um, so I have uh, an Etsy store where I sell seeds and infused sugars and stuff. And then um, I do uh, in the summertime, a Friday farm sale in my neighborhood. And every Friday, I throw everything in my driveway. Like, it's like a garage sale, but for plants. Yeah. And, uh, and 
So last summer it was really, really successful. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on, yeah, I'm working on doing that again this year. It's been a little bit slow because we've been doing some, uh, some improvements. There's been contractors tromping around everywhere, but I'm getting into that. So that'll be starting again in June. Fantastic. Well, you'll be seeing me because I uh, have a lot of friends that know me that listen to the podcast know that we're working on moving to another place. And I have an entire background backyard that's a blank canvas right now. And so I will be coming your way. (laughs) Make this gorgeous. and Let me buy stuff from you because I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) That's another thing Vicky doesn't know anything about is really gardening. I have a passion for it, but I'm just learning how to do it. I'm not an expert by any means. So very cool. Yeah. Well, it it was funny. Um, I'm terrible with plants. Like I have killed so many plants. It's ridiculous, but I just have this great desire to grow food. And so I've Mm -hmm. found, I have found that really um, old school plants, no hybrids, like whatever your great grandmother grew, they're hardier and they can survive me. Yeah. And I found that too. I started to buy some from a company that's a big seed saver company. Um, and I started doing that, I think two years ago, and it's just made a huge difference in what grows in my garden. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so awesome. Okay. So here's a stumper question. I ask all the authors on the podcast and um, I don't prep you for it ahead of time because I kind of like the answers that people give me. Um, but what else would you like new readers to know about you personally right up front? Um, so these are people that don't know you, they listen to the podcast. What's something that you'd like them to know about you? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm awesome. I mean, that's really, that's what it boils down to. Um, I think that um, the thing with me, I have done... The, the book that we're talking about today is Woman with a Thousand Hats. I've done so many jobs and I have so many interests that I um, can carry on a conversation about a lot of stuff and I write about everything. Like I just, I think everything is interesting. Awesome. And so like when I meet um, people, I work conventions and stuff. And so when I meet them, they're like, oh, you're an author. I don't read very much. I only read you know, this weird thing. I'm like, well, what do you read? Because I might have written a book already <laughs> that I could tell you about. Because um, everything I do is, is pretty um, spread out. Oh, that's but, uh, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's me. I'm just, I, I don't want to be big-headed about it, but I'm a very interesting person. Oh, no, I think that's fabulous. And I think that's a great thing to share with people. Um, and, you know, I'm sure as people get to know your, your writings or you personally, they find that out about you. So go ahead and, and gloat about being interesting. I think it's great. There's enough people in this world that aren't interesting, right? And you're just like, oh, heavens. <laughs> so. Well, I, I, think that, I think that people are more interesting than they give themselves credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, people generally, I am not this way. I'm, I'm very much an open book, but people generally like they will have some like secret passion that mm-hmm. nobody knows about. Yeah. And I think if, um, if people were braver and just let their weirdness show to the world, I, I think that they would find that they're fascinating. Oh yeah. And that's a lesson I really have tried to embrace. I, 
I um, come from academia in as far as professional background and was really trained early on to be polished in the sense of, you know, you don't let your cracks show and, you know, you keep everything very polished and, you know, academic, academic. And um, when I decided that I was going to be a writer, like consciously make the effort, I'm like, you know what, writers are very eclectic. And I love being around the writer community. Like I love being around the music community because I have that background too um, with my husband. And um, I'm like, oh, awesome. I get to be the little gypsy that I truly am deep down, (laughs) the little Mm -hmm. little eclectic person around my author friends and and to the world because that's really who I am. Uh, Right hippie gypsy deep down. And, and so it's, been, it's really releasing to allow yourself to truly just be who you are and not have to worry about what other people think about it. <laughs> so it's good. Yeah. Good place to be. So you mentioned your book title. So why don't you tell us um, what book titles you have written, if there's more than the one, um, and then what genre are you in? And I know you say you jump, you have quite a few, so you might be in different genres. I, I do. Um, so I actually write under several pen names at this point because um, I write a lot of different things and some of them are not appropriate for all readers. Yeah, totally. um, yeah so my, my uh, big thing that I am known for is a young adult sci-fi dystopia series. Um, it's the Adeline series and it's about children raised by robots. Oh, cool. Um, and I just finished the third, the manuscript for the third book in that series um, earlier or last week. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and then um, Woman with a Thousand Hats is my memoir, um, which is all about me. <laughs> um, but then I also write as DK Green. Um, I had a series started that's about serial killers in the Pacific Northwest Very and it's all it's a uh, fiction but I, I think people who harm other people are fascinating like I'm not a fan of violence or anything but just the psychology of it is really fascinating to me mm-hmm. so I I write that uh, but I started using pen names at that point because I have fans who read Adeline with their kids oh, I and got I you. didn't want them to be like oh there's another Denise Kawaii book Oops. we're gonna go get it yeah um because it's not for kids well that makes so sense. um so yeah so I started um branching off so I've got uh Denise Kawaii is all my main fiction um and non-fiction now with the memoir and then I do uh psychological crime under DK Green I have some erotica under DK Wild. Yep. Um, nice. <laughs> and then I, I also have a children's book that will come out someday when the art is done. Very so, good. Are you doing the art or do you have an artist that you want to hire for it? Um, the children's book, I have an artist working on it. Um, and it's taking a while because she also is a very busy lady and she's doing it uh, kind of on the side. So... I'm hoping it will come out late this year, or early next year, but we'll see. I love the fact that you have different genres and different pen names because I, I tend to want to be the same way. I, I'm an aspiring author, so I haven't published anything yet. 
but I have so many ideas in different aspects that I thought about using different pen names for that, for that very reason. Um, and I think it's fascinating that you, you did fiction on um, serial killers in the Pacific Northwest. There are a tremendous amount of research resources in the Pacific Northwest about that topic. It's just uncanny. Yeah. I mean, people it's, don't realize it's, really... it. it's very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. And, um, when I first started writing, well, when I first started publishing, I've written forever. Uh, when I first started publishing, the, the first book that I did is a contemporary romance. And I, I worked with a publisher on that book. And I was like, I have all these other stories that I want to write. What do I do? And the, you know, the marketing advice is that you stick with one thing because yeah. it takes time to build your author name. Yeah, and yeah. I am terrible at following really good advice. <laughs> so I didn't do that. Um, but it was just kind of like nobody knew who I was anyway. So why not just do what I wanted to do and uh, whatever takes off, takes off. And, and I'm at least having a good time. So it works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. But uh, I, I like the, the pen name thing. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's awesome. So talk to me and the reader listeners a little bit about the type of publication. You mentioned that you'd worked with a, in a traditional publishing situation at the very beginning. I'm doing a lot of research about the differences for myself. And that's what started Mm -hmm. the podcast is that there's a lot of different options, but I wanted to really hear from other authors about their publication journey. So kind of talk us through. So are you now self-published? You have been traditionally, are you considered a hybrid? If you are, explain what a hybrid publishing is for some people that may not know what that is. So tell me kind of about that for you. So I, I, I am no like publishing savant, but I've heard hybrid used two different ways. One being someone who is traditionally traditionally published for like their anchor book, you know, whatever they're well known for, and then they kind of get into to self-publishing either on the side to publish stuff that they can't sell, mm-hmm. or to public or their name is so big that they want don't want to share royalties. Yeah. Um, and so I've heard it used that way, and then I've also used hybrid publishing used by publishers for vanity publishing, which is um, paying a publisher to publish your book. And that, to me, is not really um, hybrid, but they, they like to call vanity publishing a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so actually with my first uh, book, I worked on it for, it took me seven years to find someone who would publish it. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I ended up looking at vanity publishing because I just wanted my book to be done. And um, in some of the early author groups that I was a part of um, online, because I didn't want to actually tell anyone in person that I needed help with publishing, um, people, really talk, people really talked down about vanity publishing. Um, and I stand alone and say, if all you want is for the story that you have written to be polished and edited and printed, and you just want to hold it in your hands, vanity publishing is great. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't know where to start, it's fantastic. Um, 
So anyway, so I worked with Brighton Publishing for my first book and went through the whole process with them. And um, it was really wonderful until the book was printed. Mm-hmm. And they say that publishers don't usually do a lot of marketing, mm-hmm. but it didn't really register until the publisher really didn't do any marketing. Oh, I got <laughs> the end. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, at the time, was working, I was doing a lot of uh, advertising copy. My husband and I owned a business, and then previous to that, I had worked for a big uh, franchise, and I did local ad copy. And so going through the whole process of putting the book together, I realized that I had a lot of the skills needed. Like, I could make a cover, and I could make a blurb, and I could do all that stuff. Yeah. And so um, after doing the one book with the publisher, I decided to try doing it myself mm-hmm. and found that I, I really enjoy putting a book together from start to finish. Yeah. Um, and I, I know people who can help me with editing and, and all that stuff. And uh, so I decided to self-publish. And so since then, I've been doing it um, on my own mm-hmm. and... I actually sell more as a indie author than I did my, everything I have done has outsold my first book. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah. So I like it. <laughs> I, I'm tending to lean towards indie. Definitely. I, I tend to be very self-motivated. I'm fine with doing a lot of things myself, um, but I don't know the industry super well. Right. So that's kind of the area where I'm doing all this research and kind of getting my feelers out. Um, but every single time I get a um, traditional published author on the podcast and I listen to them and they have good experiences, I'm like, man, maybe that's the route I should go. <laughs> so I'm just going to have yeah. to see what happens, right? I mean, this is a lifelong journey that I'm, I'm into. And so it's going to be, who knows what it'll end up being. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, that's the thing. Um, I talk to, to new authors all the time or aspiring authors and they want to know like what's the best way to make my book happen mm-hmm. and I think the best way is whatever way works for you like it yeah. really depends on like what is your actual goal like do you just want to say that you've written a book do you want to see yourself on the best times or you know bestseller list yep. um, is it somewhere in the middle and you know maybe having a, tr- a traditional contract is really, really important, you know, having that validation, then absolutely go for it. Um, for me, I am impatient and I want to do a project and move on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Schlepping my, my first novel for seven years around a bunch of publishers and getting dozens of rejection letters, you know, it's really, really hard to keep going. Oh yeah. And, and so, um, so, you know, I'm not going to say if one of the big five came to me and offered me a bunch of money for a book, I mean, I would, I would have lunch with them and discuss that. <laughs> you <laughs> but, <say> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there are a ton of options for getting books out there. And I think all of them are good for specific authors. You know, anyone, anyone that wants, you know, just a digital book, easy you can do it yep it just depends on what your your goal is the goal is exactly 
So let's talk a little bit about those first seven years you were slumping around and, you know, writing the letters and that kind of thing. Did you get, uh, did you consider going the agent route? I talked to a lot of um, authors about agents, get an agent, don't get an agent. You know, it's almost like getting a publishing deal. It's, it's a lot of work. So tell us about your experience with that. If you have any experience around that. So, so my experience was I got stuck in a vicious, vicious cycle where um, I would talk to agents who wanted me to have been previously published mm. and the publishers wanted me to have agents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, I couldn't, it took me forever to get my book in front of someone who was okay with the fact that it was my first book. Yeah. Um, and with uh, Brighton, I, I can't remember. I, I sent out so many like queries and stuff. I can't remember if I just, if they had like a call for new authors and I sent them my stuff or I don't remember. Somehow they, they ended up with it. And, and another uh, company also at the same time was, was interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no agent for me. It would have made life probably easier, but <laughs> it didn't work out. That's right. Well, you know what? It, it wasn't meant to be for you. You're obviously doing just fine right now where you're at. And lots of lessons that you've learned that, you know, hopefully you can share with others like me. So how we're doing it. Yeah. You know, sure. So marketing, marketing is something I talk about with everybody. I mean, there's just this marketing thing. You already mentioned it, you know, with your first book, they say, you know, that, that even if you're signed traditionally, you're going to do a lot of marketing yourself and mm-hmm. you realize that. So give us some tips about what you do, what, what some of the um, aspects you do for marketing. Is there any tools that you use? I like to collect any resources and place them in show notes for other authors like me um, that are trying to feel their way around the whole marketing aspect, you know? Um, so my main thing um, I really like to talk to people and when I talk to people, they generally think that, uh, you know, they like me and I'm, I'm really good at selling books when I'm face to face with someone. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do a lot of conventions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm comfortable in conventions. I would be going anyway because we're a geeky nerdy family mm-hmm. and to have a table, um, then you have some place to sit <laughs> with exactly. all the stuff that you buy. Um, and so, so yeah, I, what works for me the best, um, is going to, uh, cons and connecting with artists and book reviewers and all those people that are there. And, you know, I can, I can make as much traction in a weekend at a convention, um, networking as I seem to do in a month and a half sitting at my laptop looking on the internet for someone to want to buy my book. Yeah, exactly. The, the fishing internet troll situation. So, so right. you, am I correct? So you guys will go, so you'll do a booth at a convention that's not author related. So like, um, I like it to, I like to be able to sell books. Um, but, uh, like this year I'm, I'm a little bit light on conventions this year because I've got some other stuff going on in my life, but 
Um, I do uh, Rose City Comic Con every year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where I met the artist that did all the art for my memoir. <clears throat> um, and my editor goes there every year. And so we have a weekend powwow where we get together. Um, and then I also do um, really little cons. I actually sell as much at really small cons as I do mm-hmm. at something big like Rose City. Mm-hmm. And so um, just a couple months ago, I did uh, NanoCon here in Longview, Washington. The, uh, it's at the community college in oh, town. Okay. okay, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's not very big. They, they don't have a huge attendance, it. but... I do think I saw it advertised just briefly. Yeah, you, you may have around town. And, yeah. But the nice thing about the smaller cons is people aren't in a rush the whole weekend and so you can really talk to people and um it, it's not as frantic so yeah. yeah um but yeah I like I like going to events and glad handing with people and rubbing elbows and um that that is what really really works for me and that I've met um book bloggers and instagrammers and, and all those people at conventions and and then we go home and then we get behind our computer and then we yeah, yeah. <laughs> can network from there. Yeah. No, it's really, really smart. I love the idea. So thanks for sharing that tip. If, if you're the type of person that can do that, um, a lot of authors are such introverts. And I will say I'm an extrovert introvert that those kind of conventions might be a lot for them. But it's something I never really considered myself doing um, because. I work from home now. I used to not work from home, but for six years, I've been working from home. And the hardest thing for me to adjust to was the fact that I wasn't in face-to-face meetings and having networking connections because I'm really great at networking, especially face-to-face. So I love that idea um, about going to smaller little conventions and conferences and plugging yourself there. So really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. And and actually, the smaller conventions, if you can get to conventions that have, I'll say, less than a 1,000 attendees, it's, okay, everyone in the internet, it's really easy to get on a, on a panel to speak yeah. as a professional. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Like, if you, if you want a, a feather in your cap, go to a small convention and talk on all the panels, and everyone will think that's your big business. Um, I love it. Great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. setting myself up somewhere to do it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then the other thing that um, I have recently become a fan of um, on YouTube, there is a podcast called the Science Fiction and Fantasy Marketing Podcast. Nice. Um, and they have been uh, filming this po- podcast for, I think, three years. There are a couple hundred episodes, and it is all about marketing all the time. I'm writing this down, so I'll make sure that that link, I'll find the link and add it in show notes for others. Um, and it's on YouTube, is what you said? It's on YouTube. And cool. they have, um, it, there's three authors, and I wish I could remember their names off the top of my head, but I have a terrible memory. That's okay. Um, but they talk, about, they talk about all kinds of um, marketing, online, offline, awesome. everything in between. Well, I will make sure that's added to the show notes for this podcast for other listeners to go find it. And I'm definitely going to go looking at it for myself. So Denise, um, talk about support groups and associations that you might be a part of. And 
Um, kind of share with us any of them that you are a part of so that I can add those to the list for anybody that's looking for more help, right? And um, tell us what you feel about as far as support. Um, how important is it to you as an author? Um, a year ago, I would have said, screw support. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when I first started publishing books, I tried really hard to um, connect with other authors. And for some reason, people who have been in publishing for a long time, and this is a general statement, I know that it's not true for everyone, but, but my experiences were that they kind of were like, oh, you have one or two books that you self-published. How nice for you. And then they would kind of go on their merry way. Pat you on the um, Good little girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how cute. How cute of you. <laughs> and so um, I, I became really, I won't say against connecting with other people, but I didn't do it because mm -hmm. I, I don't like to be patronized or talked down to. And Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of just stayed in my own little bubble for a really long time. Um, through going to conventions, I have met a lot of people over the last several years who I really, really value. And then, um, a couple of them have pushed me, they have forced me to join groups and I have met more people that are actually <laughs> really great. So, um, I just, uh, this year, joined the Northwest Independent Writers Association. Yeah, I have had uh, one of the original founding um, members of that, and the, another one he'll be on the podcast later. So I know what that organization is. Very cool. Yeah, perfect. Um, so yeah, I joined them uh, this year, and they have been really great. Um, and I also started... As a, as a self-published author, it's really, really hard to get in the bookstores. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started getting to know bookstore owners. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was down in Portland, I made a couple of friends who owned a bookstore, and they were fantastic. And then when I moved, um, that was like I was on a mission to yeah. meet a bookstore yeah. owner. Yeah. And, uh, and so if you are able to... Um, bookstores are fantastic because a lot of them have writing groups. A lot mm -hmm. of them have time. Like if you want to practice speaking in public, you know, they have open mic nights or you can go, you can like really pretend to be professional and have a class and see if people show up and tell them something. <laughs> and so um, the getting to know um, other authors, individually and then enough of them are in in the the writers association that i finally joined and then um bookstore owner i i if you can meet a, a bookstore owner and get to know them it will be fantastic for you because they know so much about uh, really selling books day in day out yeah yeah and um of your connection with a bookstore owner. So you're pretty connected with a really great bookstore um, kind of going north of where we live. Um, and that's who you are doing your podcast with, your future podcast, right? So tell us, yes. a, give us a little a little trailer for that podcast for other listeners because some of my listeners might be interested in that when you guys release it. 
So uh, Jen owns Vault Books and Brew in Castle Rock, Washington, and she is one of the most entertaining people I have ever met. Mm -hmm. She's just hilarious. Um, And so we started filming um, for a podcast, and it's going to be called uh, Skirts and Words, Mm -hmm. and it's just women talking about reading, writing, and selling books. That's awesome. And uh, it's, it's been so much fun to put together. Um, the last one that we filmed, <clears throat> which will be coming out, I think we're releasing this episode in probably August, but we, uh, we did a whole episode on being awkward, and we read uh, Cringeworthy by Melissa Dahl. Oh, love it. <laughs> and uh, it was so much fun, because the, the lady that we had as a guest, she's like, I'm not sure what to do. I, you know, what do I do with my hands and the camera? And I'm like, it's okay. The whole thing is about being awkward. You can be as weird as you want. <laughs> so it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Well, I can't wait for it to come out because I heard about it, you know, a while ago that you guys were doing it and I've been waiting for the release. So hopefully my listeners will be interested in finding it too, because I think it's going to be fantastic. So, um, so tell me, Denise, as far as your inspiration goes for being an author, what keeps you going and what's your, or more, what's your inspiration? Um, I, I love to tell stories. And I'm inspired by everything. So like Adeline, um, my sci-fi is about these children who are raised in a mechanized society and everything is, is very metered out and everything is the same every day and on and on and on. And uh, that whole concept came from me working in a call center. Um, I did call center work for several years and my whole day was in three-minute scripts. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I had time limits for everything, and I had to hit all these quotas. And um, so I really just kind of, I don't know, I spin everything into a story. And mm-hmm. I think that's why I have ended up in so many genres, because I just like to tell stories about people, mm-hmm. regular people, but regular people live in all kinds of different um, circumstances. Yeah. So um, I just love everything (laughs) all the time. My big, and I I can relate because my biggest um, inspirations come to me when I'm sitting at the airport. I have to travel occasionally, not a lot, but enough that I am in layovers at airports and I'm always watching. I'm a people watcher. It's like my sister, my daughters and I, we just love to watch people wherever we go. And I always spin a story about people that I'm watching. It's like I get all these background information about them in my head and I'm like oh my gosh it's so good I gotta write all this down <laughs> so yeah, yeah. definitely on there so let's set the stage for your reading because I'm just dying to hear your reading um so tell us a little bit about the work the title um and give us some background around it um before you start reading then I'm going to be quiet sit back and listen to you read sure um so my uh the book that we're talking about today is woman with a thousand hats um, and I, like I, I mentioned before, I have had, I think I'm on my, it's like my 27th career path or something. Some people call it job hopping. I was just exploring all my options, but, uh, I, I really wanted to be a writer when I was a kid and 
in my teens decided that that wasn't a real job. And so I really wanted to be, I just wanted to be normal. I had um, kind of a rough childhood and being normal was like the most important thing for me. And so Woman with a Thousand Hats is about me figuring out that it's okay to not be normal. And actually people kind of like that. <laughs> so so uh, I'm going to be reading about um, being an office manager, which is just so exciting. <laughs> so uh, Woman with a Thousand Hats and the chapter is called Manager of Things. Okay. You're stupid to think that some guy is going to marry you and stick with you. That's what my supervisor at the insurance company said when I announced that Keith had asked me to marry him. Once upon a time, Keith said that I was complex. That convincing me of something takes a multi-level, long-term, gentle approach. I'm here to tell you, though, that there is a simple one-step way to jumpstart my decision-making. Just tell me I'm stupid and I can't do something. The way the insurance agency was structured, my supervising agent got a percentage of every policy I wrote. My success was his success. After being told how dumb I was for thinking someone might want to spend their life with me, I decided on the spot that this guy wasn't going to benefit from my hard work anymore. I stopped writing policies. And within a week, I was turning in any company-owned materials I still had in my possession. I was proud of myself for dumping the gig. I'd been working a lot of hours, spending too much money on gas and time on the road. The one thing I loved about my job was hanging out with my new sister-in-arms, Elise. The time would show that she wasn't going anywhere. Well, she was going everywhere, but she wouldn't lose my phone number. And so, after just a few months of being an insurance agent, I found myself unemployed. Bills were due. I'd been borrowing money from Keith to cover them between paychecks. I looked out on the job horizon and the only openings that called my name were more call center jobs. I knew if I went back to the gray on gray world of cubicles that I would die inside. I decided to take my chances with the temp agency. They promised me a new gig every week if I was up to it. It took a few days for my first assignment to come in they told me it was for a job working at a reception desk. I told them I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to talk on the phone. The recruiter told me that it was just one job. In a week or two, they'd find me something else to do. Besides, it would open me up to a different kind of phone work, and that would look like a step up on my resume. I arrived at the address on the assignment sheet, and parked just outside the roped-off lot. I punched the number of the agency office. There had to be a problem with the address. I was sitting outside of a fast food joint. No, the address is correct. They just opened and need someone to answer the phone. 
I didn't want to be on the phone and I didn't want to work fast food. My recruiter told me that I had to work at least two days while they found another candidate. I sighed in resignation. That first shift was insane. A family had moved up to Oregon from Texas and brought their Southern-based restaurant franchise with them. People lined up for hours to hit the drive-through. The phone was ringing off the hook as I set my stuff down on the narrow steel desk in the manager's office, which was two tables plopped down in the middle of a kitchen. It didn't stop ringing. That first day, I answered the phone nonstop for 12 hours. The people calling were asking for driving directions from places all over the state. The scene outside the restaurant was a blur. People were struggling to keep up with the thousands of customers rolling through. It was intense, exciting. Plus, they gave me free food. I called the temp agency back and told them I'd finish out the two-week commitment. Two weeks later, the gig was extended through the end of the month. I performed well. My familiarity with life on a three-minute script kept up with the phone, and I could take care of the few customer complaints that came in without having to ask anyone else for help. The franchise owners decided that I was worth keeping on. They told me that they did have an actual office just up the road, and they needed an office manager to keep track of paperwork and support the restaurant management staff. They bought out my contract with the temp agency, and I would end up working for them for four years. Working isn't the right word. I committed myself to the expansion of a burger empire. I loved being there and found myself spending most of my waking hours poring over spreadsheets, processing new hire paperwork, and routing much less frequent phone calls to the appropriate parties. I excelled. I worked mostly by myself in the small office. I'd do errands for the owners if they were around and drive, dive myself into mountains of data and paperwork if they weren't. The longer I stayed, the more integrated into the running of things I became. In less than a year, I was doing more than my job description could possibly cover. I was assisting with, or simply the only one doing, payroll, human resources, getting the stores into state compliance for OSHA, and I helped edit and update the training materials for employees company-wide. I was being groomed for more responsibility and reward than I dreamed a fast food job could possibly offer. I trekked to Oklahoma for a company convention that dwarfed any other convention I've ever attended, both in mass and attendance, and evangelical dedication to the tossed or fried cause. I was bought in, sold, signed, field delivered. I could see myself engaged with this company and its people for decades. I loved it. And for a minute, it seemed to love me. We were all riding a pretty huge wave. 
our little restaurant was breaking national sales records. When a second restaurant was built, the results were similarly incredible. The golden goose had come. My fellow managers and I marveled at how lucky we were to be part of something so simply great. Just when we got used to how good things were, everything would get inexplicably better. Then, three years in, the bubble burst. A third location opened during the same time that Keith and I got married. Prior to the wedding, things were still trending up. I had voiced some reservations about the location that they decided to put the third store, but the other two sites had done so well that everyone was convinced the location didn't matter. If you build it, they'll find the drive-through. I was away from work for about a month. First, for the wedding of the ages. Red carpet, bacon lobster, and an awards ceremony that made us all feel like celebrities for a day. Then Keith and I took a luxurious week-long cruise down the coast of Mexico. On our way home, we both caught a mutant international cruise line flu that had us both green and spewing for a couple of weeks. When I returned, the landscape was horrifically different. The new restaurant opening was a flop. It probably would have been okay as far as restaurant openings go, but everyone had prepared for a much higher volume of customers than showed up. Expenditures were bursting at the seams without the sales needed to back them up. They'd hired too many people, bought too much food, spent too much time and money on traffic control. Rather than being bursting to the gills for months, sales trickled in. Rather than being, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> as emotionally invested as we all were, it was a blow to our egos and our confidence. My bosses, the franchise owners, took the opening of the third site hard. The strain on their personal lives was clear as they grappled with suddenly not being the golden franchisees. Unfortunately, their response to the matter at hand was swift and unforgiving. Within a few weeks, I discovered that the empire we built was crumbling. My peers were getting let go rapid fire until only a couple of us original employees remained. Nobody's job was safe. I started crumbling under the pressure to do more. Everything I did was scrutinized and any input I'd previously had on running the business dissolved. A few months later, I was dying under the strain. I'd go home crying because the demands were so great. And all the recognition I'd known previously had been pulled off the table. I decided to stand up for myself and ask for a raise. If they were going to continue to expect me to push 50-hour weeks, at least they could bump my salary. I pulled a list of my responsibilities, cross-referenced those with the pay scale of the other managers, those working inside the restaurant and called a meeting with the bosses. They did offer me a small raise, but it wasn't what I hoped for. 
not enough to keep me working myself to death. Around that time, the time that I was bargaining for a better return on my labor investment, I also got some interest in my first novel, Age, Sex, Location, Love is Just a Click Away. The contemporary romance had been passed over by several publishers, but suddenly I found myself turning down a publishing contract from one company and accepting a contract from Brighton Publishing. When Brighton Publishing and I reached an agreement, my decision was made. I was going to stop working for other people and focus on working for myself. I learned a lot working with the editors, artists, and press folk at Brighton Publishing, and a few months after I quit being an office manager, I held my first book in my arms. Freshly inked, encased in a glossy cover, it was like holding a newborn baby for the first time. I breathed something into the world, and it manifested itself in paperback. I'd always written from the time I was a kid. But now that I'd showed it to someone and they thought it was worth selling, I was hooked on the author bug. Most of my time as an office manager is spent alone. I send hundreds of emails a day, but otherwise my office is my domain. My desk is the only one in the building with a window, unless you count the pass-through that connects my work area to the office behind my desk. My grand window view is of two empty parking spaces out front and a blank corner of the warehouse across the lot. There's a giant pot of plants just outside the door that I watch die in the afternoon sun. I've killed about $300 worth of plants in that pot over the three years I've been here. I'm a great office manager, but I stuck at keeping plants alive. One of the side projects I've been assigned to as an office manager is figuring out how to get into compliance with safety regulations without sending our insurance rates to soaring. The first part of the project is relatively easy. Research the regulations, figure out our risk for dangerous situations. I mean, what could go possibly wrong in a restaurant? What with the knives, boiling oil, slippery floors, hot grills and all. And create documents to outline what we can do to make the state, the insurance company, and our employees all relatively happy. Read, type, print, check. Step two of this project is a little barrier. I've got to package up this new safety program and deliver it to the managers and employees. It's not as simple as sending an email that says, do this. No. The whole thing needs to be brought into the restaurant as an active dialogue so that we can fix things that aren't working as quickly as possible. So how do we do that? Oh, I have a great idea. How about I use a segment of the manager meetings, employee meetings, and orientation to speak about all this safety stuff? Nods all around. Never mind. 
that I haven't done any type of public speaking since high school, when I probably read notes from a book report aloud from my seat. Never mind the fact that I don't really know what I'm doing and none of the changes I'm suggesting we implement are wanted or asked for. Let's just not worry about the fact that talking about safety, risk assessment, and insurance are three of the most boring things on the planet. Let's not take any of that into consideration. This is where I discover that I cry during the first five minutes of any public speaking engagement. It doesn't matter the topic. Let's take a look at what happens when I stand up in front of a group of 20 managers to talk about enforcing the non-slip shoe policy, shall we? Hello, everyone. There is a pregnant pause while I realize that my eyes are welling up. I take a few deep breaths. Everyone is looking at me like I'm going to tell them that the president was just shocked. Today, I am going to remind you again that you cannot let your employees wear Canvas sneakers at the Fry Station. I sniffle and wipe a trailing tear from my cheek. <gasps> These are teenagers. Working in grease, spilling it on the ground, and then flailing around in it. Teenagers are stupid. Let's face it, make them wear approved shoes, or OSHA is going to write us up again. I stand there, breathing deeply, gaining some control over my tear duct. Everyone else looks up at me trying to figure out why I'm so broken up over a bunch of dumb kids who think NSF safety shoes don't look cool with their uniforms. Someone has a question, and by now, I'm gathered up enough that I am able to answer it without the aid of a Kleenex. The more back and forth we have, the more words I'm able to string together without sniffling. Eventually, it turns into a decent presentation. You might think that this is just early jitters, and you'd be right. The problem is, years later, when I'm standing in front of a classroom full of aspiring authors who all want to hear about my novel, Adeline, the same scene will play out again. At some point, I decide I'm just going to start telling people that I'll come talk to their group as long as they ask me questions about starving children and homeless puppies for the first five minutes so that I can shed my introductory tears over worthy issues. Then we can get on with the speaking topic at hand like normal human beings. Oh, absolutely bravo. Yay, thank you. 
<laughs> I love it. So many things in that that one chapter uh, hooked me. So now I'm going back to I have to read all the entire book. So listeners, if you loved Denise's reading, definitely find her book, get the book, um, find her on on her um, website. It'll be listed in show notes and let her know that you love the book as well. So Denise, thanks so much for being here. I look forward to um, hearing your guys' podcast and maybe having you come back on when you finish another book soon. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye.